This passage this morning that we're going through is a fairly long one. So I'm going to go ahead and, and read it um, instead of asking somebody else to come up and give them a marathon worth of reading, I will go ahead and do that. So if you have your Bibles, um, you can turn to Mark chapter 5. We're in verses 21 through 43. Um, Or you can look in your bulletin on page 5. You can find it there. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21, says this. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Now, a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, Who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. They came to the leader's house and he saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him. But he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him, and entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. All right, so good morning. It is excellent to see you guys. In the mid-18th century, some of you guys as Americans may be a little bit aware of uh, something called the American Revolution. Um, It's kind of why we're here. So big deal. And part of that was stemmed from this real big frustration with taxation without representation. And so what happened 
was these American settlers who came here in the 13 colonies. They were being taxed by Britain, and they had no representation over in their home country. So they were kind of fed up. They said, you know what? We deserve representation. If you're not going to give it to us, we're going to be our own country. Now, that was, took place in 1765 is when that started. Just a few years prior, in 1758, in a book published by Benjamin Franklin called The Way to Wealth, he wrote this. He's kind of touching on the frustration with taxes. He said, we are taxed twice as much by our idleness, three times as much by our pride, and four times as much by our folly. And from these taxes, the commissioners cannot ease or deliver us by allowing an abatement. However, let us hearken to good advice, and something may be done for us. Here's what he says. God helps them that help themselves. God helps them that help themselves. This is Benjamin Franklin's advice in the midst of them being frustrated with taxes. Now, little did Benjamin Franklin realize that just a few years later, Americans would help themselves and they would begin this American revolution. They take matters into their own hands. And so this idea that God helps those who help themselves is very tightly interwoven with our American culture. That God helps those who are able to do something for themselves. We've heard this before. You want help from God? Well, do something for yourself first. And then God helps those who will do something for themselves first. And so one of the things we have to ask ourselves as we gather here is we're surrounded by a culture that can live and breathe this motto. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Go get to the dream that you're dreaming of. We have to ask ourselves, is this motto... God helps those who help themselves. Is it biblical? Is it faithful with Scripture? Now, there's no verse in Scripture that says something like this. In fact, I would argue there's nothing that even implies it. However, what I think we'll see in today's text is that because Jesus helps the helpless, we are only secure when we recognize our complete and utter dependence on him. Because Jesus helps the helpless, we are only secure when we recognize that we are entirely dependent on him for help. Another way to say it is that God only helps those who recognize that they can't help themselves. Direct contrast to that phrase, God helps those who help themselves. So as we kind of march through this fairly long passage. Um, I think a couple benefits, if, if I preach this faithfully, then Lord willing, a couple benefits will be that the, our pride will diminish a little bit. We'll recognize our need for Christ. We'll recognize how helpless we are. And then also the gospel will become that much sweeter to us. When we recognize who we really are, when we recognize who Jesus is, it allows the gospel to be that much more sweeter to us. And so we are continuing to march through Mark and been going passage by passage. And Mark, just for a quick recap, Mark is the first gospel written. So um, likely Matthew and Luke borrowed from Mark and this other source uh, that commentators will call Q. And what they did is they wrote their gospels. And then afterwards, John came along and, 
and um, used these various different sources. But the first gospel written was Mark, and it was written in the 50s or 60s AD, and it was written by John Mark. He was writing to the Roman church. And what we saw in, verse, or in chapter 4, 4 and 5, is we saw Jesus' authority displayed over nature with that violent storm on the Sea of Galilee. And then we saw it displayed over spirits with a man who had 2,000 plus demons inside of him. And so now we will see Jesus' authority in this passage as we wrap up chapter 5. We'll see his authority over life and death. Many commentators will look at chapter 5 and they'll call it the St. Jude chapter. Um, because St. Jude, if you have a Catholic background, Roman Catholic background, then you'll recognize that St. Jude is the saint of hopeless causes. And we see several what appear to be hopeless causes in chapter 5. The demon-possessed man. We see the girl who is dying, and as we read, died. And then we also see the woman who had been pleading for 12 years and sought all kinds of doctors. And so we see these three instances of hopeless causes, and we see the one who is able to come in and address each. And so as we go through the rest of this chapter, verses 21 through 43 this morning, there are three individuals that I want us to take a look at. And we see a helpless man, we see a helpless woman, and a helpless child. Helpless man, helpless woman, and helpless child. So let's pray, and then we will dive right in. Father, we come before you, and we are grateful for the gift that it is to be able to gather, to gather around the gospel, to be reminded of who we are and who you are. We pray that you would make it abundantly clear to us. Pray that you would help me speak clearly, that I would proclaim the gospel clearly, that you would grant us ears to hear. And God, we pray for other churches that are doing similar things this morning, that are proclaiming the gospel. Think of Linworth Baptist, just north of Worthington. Lord, we pray for them, that you would bless their ministry. Lord, we, we pray for Maranatha Community Church in Pickerington. Lord, we are grateful for uh, the faithful brothers and sisters there, that as they proclaim the gospel, that the city of Pickerington would be blessed and their congregation would grow in spiritual maturity. And we pray the same thing for Scarlet City in Clintonville. Lord, we are grateful for other churches that faithfully proclaim this gospel. We pray that we would be able to come alongside and faithfully proclaim it this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I said we have three points. And the first one, first character that we're going to look at is a helpless man. And so this man that approaches Jesus when he gets back to the other side, his name is Jairus. That's what we are told. And so this man, we get a little bit of insight into what his occupation is. Um, we get a little bit of insight into what some of his duties are in the community. And so he is known as a synagogue leader, which is significant because that means that this Jewish culture, remember they were over in a Gentile region with the demon-possessed man, then they came back over to a, a Jewish region. And so everything, all of life revolves around the synagogue. And this man, Jairus, is a synagogue leader. Now, that does not mean that he's a rabbi or a scribe. 
He's actually a lay leader, but this lay leader oversees everything to do with the synagogue. He oversees the teaching to ensure that it's orthodox, faithful teaching. He oversees in the just general maintenance just to make sure things get done. And so this man is in a very high state in his culture. He's a man of status. And yet, he approaches Jesus head on. And what does he do? He falls down and he begs Jesus earnestly. See that in verse 23. He begged him earnestly. My little daughter is dying. I have two little daughters. And I could not imagine to the, getting to the point where I am having to tell someone that she is dying, either Lennon or Finley. The pain that would be there, I, I can't imagine the pain that this man is feeling. C.S. Lewis says that a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. This man is a man of high status. And he gets to the point where he does not care what it looks like. He drops down at Jesus' feet and begs him. Begs him because his daughter is dying. And he looks up at him. And he awaits his response. And what does Jesus do? In verse 24, we are told that Jesus went with him. Jesus shows him compassion. Jesus promises to walk with him. And whatever, I don't know what you're going through, I don't know what is going on in your life, whether it's a work situation or a relationship situation or if it's a family situation, whatever, what, financial, whatever it is, if you drop down before Jesus, he will walk with you. He will not push you away would encourage you to take whatever it is that's going on in your life. Maybe now, maybe later, a, a pastor one time told me, he said, remember this, you're always in one of three stages in life. You're either in a valley, coming out of a valley, or about to go into a valley. So you're always in one of those three stages. Whichever one you find yourself in would encourage you, take it to Jesus. Take it to his feet, drop down. He will show compassion and he will walk with you. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or abandon you. 2 Corinthians, Paul says that he's been persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. He can say that because even though he's going through these various valleys, he can see that Jesus has been with him. He has not forsaken him. Psalm 37, the psalmist says, I've been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. And then Joshua 1.5, God promises his people that I will never leave you nor forsake you. I encourage you to take the posture that this man Jairus has, that he doesn't care what it looks like. He doesn't care if it's embarrassing. He's a man of high status, and he drops down in front of everybody and brings his concerns, brings what he's going through to Jesus, and he's met with compassion. And the compassion of Jesus that leads him to walk with this helpless man this man who recognizes that there are no other opportunities. He has to go to Jesus. The same compassion is what leads Jesus to help a helpless woman. And so now we look at verses 25 through 34. 
And so this woman, we see a little bit of a break in this story. So this man comes to this woman, or this man comes to Jesus, and he's helpless. He's saying, Jesus, my daughter's about to die. He's a man of status, and he drops down. He humbles himself. He expresses his faith by saying, I need you to come and to touch her. If you just touch her, she will live. And now we see a woman, an unnamed woman, who has 12 years of menstrual bleeding. And so this woman, according to Leviticus 15, is unclean. So that means she's been 12 years unclean. And in that culture, if you were ceremonially unclean for various reasons, you had to announce to people, I'm unclean. Keep your distance, because if you touch me, then you'll also be unclean. And then they'll have to go through ceremonial cleansing to ensure that they can enter back into typical daily life. So they can enter back into worship at the temple, at the synagogue. And so what we see is this woman, notice the, notice the point that Mark's making here. So let's start in verse 25. Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. This woman has gone to extreme lengths, extreme lengths. She's suffered much. She has sought many doctors. She has spent everything she has just so that she can be clean again, just so that she can be healed. And the text, it could have left this out, but it didn't. Mark says, on the contrary, she became worse. She used every means that she had to bring cleansing to herself, and she actually ended up worse. She's unclean. She can't worship in the temple, and that's, that's for the last 12 years. She hasn't been able to worship in the temple. She can't join others in everyday activities. It means for the last 12 years, she's been isolated. She spent everything that she has. So she's unclean, she's bankrupt, and she's lonely. And she approaches Jesus, the text tells us, from behind. Whereas Jairus approached him straight on, he's a man of status. We know his name, Jairus. Mark, writing this, remembered his name. We see this woman approach Jesus from behind, and she's unnamed. She's very low status. Mark couldn't remember her name. She's a woman. She's unclean. And she is bleeding in a way that seems to be uncurable. And so we don't even know her name. So she approaches Jesus from behind because it would be almost blasphemous for her to stop him in his tracks. He's walking with a man of very high status. And there's a whole crowd following. They recognize Jesus. This guy's done some miracles. He seems to be somebody that we should pay attention to. And Jairus, hearing this, came to him. Jairus, another high-status man. So there's two high-status individuals walking and a whole crowd, a whole posse following them. And this woman who's very low societally decides, you know what, I, I, can't, I can't stop him head on because that wouldn't be acceptable. But what I can do is I can sneak through the crowd and, and I, I just touch his clothes I'll be healed. 
And despite her low position, the, the Pillar New Testament commentary says that she does the one and only important thing for a disciple to do. She heard, she came, and she touched. You see that in verse 27. She heard about Jesus, she came to him, and she touched him. To act on what one hears about Jesus is always in Mark the sign of a disciple. And this the woman does. She hears about Jesus, she goes to him, and she seeks his touch. And when she does this, she is met with restoration. Now, Jesus immediately asks her to identify herself. He says, he says who touched me? He recognizes that healing power just went out from him, and he's, he knows this, but he doesn't know who touched him, so he's trying to seek who it was that sought him. Reminds us of James 4.8, come near to God and he will come near to you. This woman has been healed. Jesus is trying to come near to her. He felt healing power go out from him. And he says, who was it? I want to know you. And this woman, we're told in verse 33, the woman with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him. Now, this woman is absolutely terrified. She has fear and trembling when Jesus asks who touched her. She recognized that she had been made well. We saw that in verse 29. That when Jesus wants to know who it was, she's terrified. Why? Why would she be terrified? She's been healed. She's heard of Jesus' ministry. He seems to have compassion on a lot of people. That's why she wants to get close to him, to touch him, to be healed. Why would she be terrified? The reason is because this woman is, as we've already laid out, unclean. And so we were told that there is a huge gathering around Jesus as they're going to see Jairus' daughter, so two high-status individuals, and they're wanting to follow and see, and this woman presses through a thick crowd, which means she likely touched a lot of people. She's low societally, she is unclean, and she likely just made dozens of other people unclean. And so when Jesus says, who was it that touched me? If she says who she is, that it was me, there's a legitimate chance that it could cost her her life. Because there are individuals who would be angry that one, they stopped these two high status men from going to do what it appeared that they were going to do. And two, that they just made, she just made them all unclean because she pressed through. And so now these people who want to follow wouldn't be able to continue following. They would have to go and become ceremonially clean. So there's a chance when she reveals herself that the crowd could be so angry that they may just stone her. They may just end her life right there. However, she reveals herself. She identifies herself. So a question for us, because we see her telling Jesus the whole truth, being met with peace and healing, a question for us this morning is, are you willing to identify yourself? Are you willing to identify yourself in a culture that is increasingly contrary to Christ? First and foremost, as followers of Jesus, if you are that this morning, then the call is to be baptized. And baptism being tied with church membership, to identify yourself with a body, with Christ's broken body, and then the local expression of that broken body. Are you willing to identify yourself through baptism and membership this morning? Are you willing to identify yourself at work? Look, I work at a Fortune 500 company, very corporate, and I get it. There are things that you have to be careful about. I've worked for a Fortune 100 company, and 
It is not typically welcome to just come right out and proclaim the gospel through mass emails, okay? <laughs> Wouldn't recommend doing that if you want to keep your job. However, being careful does not mean being silent. So are you willing to identify yourself at work, whether you work for a company of thousands of people or just a few? Are you willing to make it known that you are a follower of Jesus? And are you willing to find ways to try to bring the gospel to bear in the lives of those around you? And that's convicting for me. I don't do that perfectly. Please don't see me up here as embodying that perfectly. That's not the case. It's something that as I was going through this, I thought to myself, oh, shoot, I need to share the gospel with my coworkers more. So are you willing to identify yourself at work with friends and family, with neighbors? Look, I get it. Friends and family, they're oftentimes permanent. And so if you do something awkward, then could have repercussions for years to come. Neighbors, unless you're moving every six months to a year, you're going to be spending a decent amount of time with them, at least in proximity. I get it. It can be awkward. But we are called to be salt and light in a community that needs the gospel. And so are you willing to identify yourself? And as this woman is met with healing, what does Jesus say? He says in verse 34, daughter, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. He is walking with Jairus, this high status man, to go heal his daughter. His daughter's about to die. And this woman comes, low status. The opposite end of the spectrum is Jairus. And Jesus says, I'm going to heal another daughter. He's like, but I will call you daughter as well. He doesn't see the status the same way that the culture around him did. And he encourages her and lets her know that she has been healed, not because of her status, but because of her faith. And as this woman hears the greatest news of her entire life, for the last 12 years she's been unclean, she's been isolated, she's been bankrupt, she's been destitute, as she hears the greatest news of her life, right after that, Jairus hears the worst news of his life. Someone comes to him and says, your daughter is dead. So now we move into the third point here of a helpless child, this little girl has died. And Jairus, likely devastated in this moment, doesn't know what to do, is told by Jesus, don't be afraid, only believe. Someone came up to him and said, why bother the teacher anymore? The worst has happened. Your daughter, you, the reason you came to this man, dropped at his feet so that he would come and heal her. The reason all these people are heading this way is to heal your daughter. She's dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Why, why continue to ask him for help? The worst has happened. What you came to him for, he wasn't able to deliver on. So why bother him? And whether you're in that now, or whether you've been there previously, or whether you may be there in the future, there will come a moment where you plead and beg to Christ, beg God for a specific thing, and it doesn't happen. 
there'll be a little voice in your head. There may even be voices outside of you. that says, why bother anymore? Why? You didn't get what you begged, what you pleaded for. Everything that you can think about with regard to this specific thing, it would seem like it was a good thing. Why would God keep it from you? Why bother? And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Only believe. Only believe. Which if I'm Jairus, I'm probably like, what? What are you, what are you talking about? I've just received the report that she is, in fact, dead. What am I supposed to believe? And Jesus encourages him. Have faith like the woman. He just called that woman daughter. There's a reason he's calling her daughter. Yes, it's a spiritual standing that she's now a daughter of God, but it's also just to let Jairus know, daughter, your faith has healed you. It's to make that connection. This woman has been bleeding for 12 years, and then we're told later that the daughter is 12 years old. There's a connection there. Mark's making that connection. So Jesus is telling him, don't be afraid. Only believe. Believe that Jesus will restore you, Jairus. Believe that Jesus will comfort you, that Jesus will carry you. I will walk with you is what Jesus is saying. Believe me. Believe me that something is happening here that maybe you can't quite recognize. Trust me. Have faith like the woman. Another source said, faith is not something that Jairus has, but something that has Jairus. Carrying him from despair to hope. Jesus' authoritative word to Jairus is not to fear, but to believe. Does faith have you this morning? No matter what you're going through, no matter what you will go through in the future, is faith something that you have or is faith something that has you? So that even when you can't stand up on your own two feet, faith carries you. And this is important for all disciples all followers of Jesus to learn because the truth is is that we this life is not promised to be easy. We see this so this passage could easily we could easily make the jump if we wanted to to faith healing. Say if you have enough faith you'll be healed. If you have enough faith you'll be healthy, wealthy and prosperous. That's a false teaching. We can't jump there because the Bible doesn't go there. What it does say is that Jesus will ultimately restore you. Jesus will ultimately carry you. And this is so important for disciples to learn because we see the apostles, they died brutal deaths. We see the early church being fed to lions. We see Jesus, who had more faith than anyone else in what the Father was doing. He was poor. didn't have a place to rest his head. He was beaten. He was spit upon. And he was ultimately crucified. This passage is not about faith healing. It's not about prosperity theology. It's about trusting that God is doing something even when we can't exactly see it and that he will ultimately carry us. And this is important for us as disciples to know. And Jesus makes that point because he knows he's about to do something incredible. And so in verse 37, we see that he did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John. So Jesus had his 12 the disciples, and we consistently see throughout the Gospels that he had his three, Peter, James, and John. He's really trying to invest in these three. There's discipleship happening. Good question for us is, is who's our three? It doesn't have to be exactly three. Please don't hear that. 
but who are the, the couple, the few that you're really investing in, that you are discipling? Who's discipling you? Because as disciples, faithful disciples make disciples. See this in Matthew 28. So we are called to, to make disciples. And so Jesus knows he's about to do something important. He doesn't just go in there by himself. He says, hey, guys, come along with me. Discipleship doesn't have to be this robust 12-week program with a huge curriculum. It's, hey, come along with me. Watch me. See what it looks like. So he takes these men with him, Peter, James, and John. And he walks into this area. And what do we see? We see a ton of commotion. Ton of commotion. And so in that culture, what was um, culturally accepted is that when someone died, that you would hire professional mourners. And as I was looking into this, um, I read that even the poorest person in Israel, it was understood that they should hire at least two flute players and one wailing woman. Even the poorest person. Got to have three professional mourners there. Two flute players and at least one wailing woman. Now this guy, Jairus, he's a man of status. So you could imagine how many whalers, how many flute players, how, many, how much commotion is going on at the death of his daughter. And so they arrive, and there are likely dozens of people mourning and showing their grief. And then, what does Jesus do? He looks at the whole group of the mourners, and he says, why are you making a commotion and weeping? Child's not dead, but asleep. Now, these are professional mourners. They have seen a lot of dead people. They are not ones to be fooled by someone being asleep or even comatose. They know what a dead body looks like. They know how to recognize when someone's actually dead. And there's a lot of them there. So even if maybe three or four of them got, got fooled, the dozens wouldn't have been. And so they laugh at him. They're like, all right, guy, thanks for telling us how to do our jobs. Like, why don't you, why don't you go right in there and see, see how asleep she is. But why did Jesus say asleep? Was she actually asleep? There's some debate there, but most, most commentators, most theologians would say no because of the reason that we just said that many mourners wouldn't have been fooled. But he said that Jesus is foreshadowing what he's getting ready to do. He's trying to let Jairus know don't view your daughter as dead. View her as asleep. Because what do people who are asleep do? They wake up. And so he's telling him, he's telling the whole group of mourners that this child is not going to stay the way that you're seeing her right now. She's asleep. She's going to wake up. And so when he goes in there, he then comes into contact with an unclean individual for the third time in this chapter. The first was with the man who was unclean because he had been around dead bodies in the tomb, and he was filled with unclean spirits. Jesus comes into contact with him, and what happens? He's cleansed. The spirits are driven out. And then he comes into an unclean woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, and he comes into contact with her. She touches his robe. What happens? She's cleansed. And now he goes in, and in verse 41, he took the child by the hand. So he now comes into contact with a dead body, which would mean that he would be unclean. However, Jesus is the only one who is so clean, who is so pure, 
that whenever he comes into contact with the impure, he doesn't become impure. In fact, the impure becomes pure. And so we see this three times in this St. Jude chapter of hopeless causes that each time where you see the absolute furthest degree of either illness or spiritual uh, depravity or we see a dead individual, Jesus comes into contact with them and each time he is not the one who is made unclean, rather they are made clean. And this dead girl, this little girl, immediately gets up and begins to walk. She immediately rises. She's walking around, and then Jesus says, get her something to eat. He cares for her well-being. But then also the references to the child walking around and eating, they attest to her total restoration. It's one thing for her to, to wake up and to be alive, but to be bedridden for the next few days or a few weeks, or to be very weak and ill. He touches her. She pops up. She's walking. He says, get the girl something to eat. Her t- she has been totally restored. It's not a little bit. She's been entirely. And when we come into contact with Jesus, the risen king, there's complete restoration. Not a little bit. Not 90%. Not 99%. We are 100% restored to God. So think in your head. If someone were to say, what? If God were to stand before you, when you're, when you're dead and you stand before God, and he says, why should you be brought in here? Why should you be brought into heaven? What are the first things that come to mind that speak to you as to why you shouldn't? What are your deepest, your darkest, the worst things that you have done? If you have come into contact with Jesus, he takes away all of that. There's no aspect of your sin that he does not take and pay for on the cross. This child was dead. She was completely and utterly incapable of bringing herself to life. The woman was unclean for 12 years, and she had tried everything. And she was unable to bring herself back to a healthy state. Nothing that she did. Ephesians 2.1 tells us that we also are dead in our trespasses and sins. And what we see with this little girl is that someone, this dead girl, someone pleaded on her behalf. Her father begged Jesus, dropped down, humbled himself, begged Jesus to heal his little girl. Who are you pleading on behalf of? Are there co-workers? Are there family members? Are there friends? Relationships? Who are you pleading on behalf of? Who are you bringing to Jesus? Say, please, bring this person to life. Completely dependent on you to do this. Who are the people? Maybe there's just one person. Just one person that you're going to commit to praying for for the next six months to a year throughout 2021, whatever it is. Maybe it's a few people. I would encourage you to have, have some kind of list. Mental list, actual list, whatever it is. Think of a few people to consistently be bringing to Jesus. Send them a text, shoot them a call, let them know that you love them, that you're praying for them. Be honest with them. Say, hey, this might seem weird, but I'm actually praying that you become a Christian. I love you. I love you that much. <laughs> so it might seem weird, but do it. See how they respond. And if it's any encouragement to you, I did that with a, a friend this week, and I didn't get a response. So there you go. <laughs> if it's awkward, 
I've experienced the awkwardness. So um, growing up, one of, the, one of the places that I would go to almost every summer was Cedar Point. And there was a ride there that initially I hated. It's called the Power Tower. And what it does is it takes you up hundreds of feet and just drops you, free fall. And I hated it because I didn't consider myself to be somebody who was scared of heights. But in those moments, I was a little scared of heights. And I was completely dependent on this thing to catch me to operate properly. And I have been on a roller coaster where you got to the highest point. This was down in Kings Island. Got to the highest point, and then it drops you back down. Got to the highest point, and it malfunctioned. I've been on a roller coaster where that's happened. And we were up just on this roller coaster for over an hour. And they were trying to figure it out. And I thought it was the day I was going to die. I was like, this is it. This is how it goes. And so I'm not a huge fan of roller coasters that go too high like that. Um, but the power tower, specifically, where you just free fall, not a big fan of. Entirely dependent on that thing operating properly. Now, if we're honest, we are all in a free fall headed toward our absolute destruction because we have sinned against God. We deserve to meet that death. We deserve the wrath of God because we have rebelled against him. He has commanded us to live in ways that honor him, that glorify him, and we have sought other things. However, when I was at the top of the power tower, one of the things that I promise you I did not do was loosen my strap. I wasn't trying to make any kind of point, saying I'm a tough guy, I can handle this, I'm going to loosen my strap a little bit. If anything else, I was holding on to that thing tighter. And as we, spiritually, are in this free fall, headed towards judgment, encourage you, cling all the more to Jesus, because he is the only one who can save you from that death. He is the only one who is willing. He is the only one who is capable. You are absolutely helpless outside of him. And so when Benjamin Franklin says God helps those who help themselves, I encourage you to reject that. God helps those who recognize their helplessness. Call on the name of Jesus. Turn away from your sin. Because Jesus, because Jesus helps the helpless, we are secure only and finally when we recognize our complete dependence on him. Don't miss it. This woman who smashed in the middle of this, this story she touches Jesus with faith. A lot of other people touched Jesus, and they didn't have a healing response. This woman touches him with faith. She not only was in proximity to him, but she receives his touch. There's a difference between being in proximity with Jesus and coming into contact with Jesus. Lots of people really in proximity. Only one person there touched him with faith. So I would encourage you, Ask yourself, am I in proximity with Jesus or have I actually come into contact with him? Do you love God's people? Do you desire God more than anything else? These are some, some questions to ask. Am I in proximity? Do I love God's people? Do I love being with the body that I've been adopted into? Do I love God? Is he my greatest desire? Or am I just in proximity? Do I just know of him? So, 
today. We'll close with 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus, he, God made Christ, he made him who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If, you are, if you've turned away from your sin and completely depended, acknowledge your entire dependence on Christ, then he will take your sin and he will give you his righteousness. And when that happens, we will not only be pure, but we will be promised eternal life. Resurrection, we see that with the dead child. She was resurrected. She was totally restored. The bleeding woman, she was unclean, bankrupt, and lonely. For those who are in Christ, we are clean. We have a rich inheritance. We have eternal fellowship with God the Father. I encourage you to call on Christ this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come before you grateful for your healing touch. We are grateful that you have come to us through the person of Jesus. Jesus, we are thankful that you have lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. Thank you for taking away the sin of your people. We pray that we would live faithfully in light of that. We pray that we would tell others about that. That Holy Spirit, you would embolden us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.